right, today we'll be looking at Matthew 26, verses 6 through 16. And as I was preparing for the message, I did a little Google search. You can find all sorts of interesting things on the Internet. And uh, so I did a little search on the word extravagant. You come up with all sorts of interesting things on the Internet with the word extravagant. For example, uh, Forbes magazine wrote an article on the world's most extravagant meals. Now, I don't normally go to these sort of places, so this one was shocking. There, there is um, an eight-course tasting menu at a Michelin three-star restaurant in New York City, and it cost over $200 just for that. And on top of that, uh, of course, that, that's not a whole lot to eat, so they have all this other stuff available, and it was, it was just shocking. I mean, uh, I've never had caviar, but if you ever want to buy caviar, this is probably not the place to, to buy it because you'd, you'd sit there in the lounge before your dinner, and you could have 50 grams of their special brand caviar for $860, just 50 grams of it. Yeah, that was, that was definitely extravagant in my opinion. And then on the dailymail.co.uk, they had an article on the world's most extravagant holidays. And you'll see a picture of what they classified as the world's poshest bed and breakfast. Most expes- uh, the, the most expensive one that I saw on the list of these holidays was, was well, this is one of the places. Actually, you, you, you go to three different places, and they, they call it the king of the castle holidays. And it's, they have this tour of the Maharaja uh, palaces in India, and it includes three different nights in three different hotels. This is just one of them here. And, and you get the whole place to yourself, by the way. That's one reason it's so expensive. So you can invite you know, up to 120 friends, family members, to come with you. So uh, you get the whole place yourself. So whatever you choose, the price is the same, they said. You ready for this? By the way, this is in pounds. British pounds, $2,160,000 for three nights. And you can see why they call it the world's poshest bed and breakfast. By the way, breakfast is included in that price. Uh, but everything else they said is extra, which includes the private jet travel between the three locations. And then I looked up on a, a, a website called editorial.autos and just curious what the world's most extravagant cars would be. Here's one of the cars. Uh, this car here is a 2005 Lamborghini. Don't ask me to say what the other word is. But uh, the, here, here's what the, the website said about this car. They said, everything, I'm quoting, everything about this car shouts supercar. From its low silhouette, its bellowing V12 engine, its contortionist-inspired entry, and it's $290,000 price tag. Can't imagine paying $290,000 for a car that's just going to rust and fall apart very shortly. Uh, those are certainly extravagant, in my opinion. And you probably guess, uh, as the word is often used, the word extravagant often has negative connotations especially for those of us who don't classify ourselves as wealthy. It's used in a, in a bad way a lot of times, isn't it? That's how we typically think of it. And so when we see people taking 
the blessings that have been given to them by God, and then they go and they squander them on themselves, that's a bad thing. However, however, I'm going to use the word extravagant today. For, uh, you don't see it in our text here. But I'm going to use it today in a good sense of the word. Because uh, f- as far as I'm concerned, what whatever you think is extravagant, what the object of that makes all the difference in the world. And so when a person's expressing their love and their worship for Jesus Christ in an extravagant manner, well, there's nothing negative about that. And we're going to certainly see an example of that in our text today. You think about that. Why is it not extravagant to, to do th- do stuff for Jesus Christ, to everything we have, our love and our worship for Jesus Christ. And the reason for that is because He's worthy of our worship and our love. Everything we can give Him is deserving of Him. After all, it's all His anyway. Jesus Christ is the Creator of everything we are and we see. It's all from Him. So no gift then is going to be excessive. No expression of love can be considered over the top, and no form of worship should ever be considered too extravagant to give to Jesus. Unlike Jesus' disciples, who thought that very thing about a particular woman here in our text, they thought this particular woman was being extravagant. And they weren't afraid, they weren't afraid to let her and Jesus know that. So, Here's my, here's my theme, my main idea I want to share with you today, and, and hopefully you'll see, see this coming from the text. Here's the theme, that loyalty to King Jesus requires extravagant worship. Loyalty to King Jesus requires extravagant worship. Now, in our text today, we're going to look at a positive example of extravagant worship, and then we got the opposite extreme. We have a very negative example. And I think Matthew has purposely put these two examples together side by side to, to show the, the contrast and the extreme. And so the, the first person we see here is an unnamed woman, according to Matthew, but the other Gospels name her, but she is Mary. And Mary is a genuine worshiper of King Jesus. So let's read about her in our text in Matthew 26, verse 6. Follow along in your Bible as I read, starting in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So there's our positive example, and we'll look at the negative one after this. So what's going on here? Jesus is anointed by a woman. 
And Matthew gives us the setting there in verse 6. If you have a, have a look there, you notice it says it's in the town of Bethany. Bethany was the place that, that Jesus was staying at as he would, he would go and come from Jerusalem. It was, it was actually considered a, kind of like a suburb of Jerusalem. It was just about two miles or three kilometers on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. So you'd, if you walked out, say, the eastern gate of Jerusalem, Go, go past the Mount of Olives, you'd, you'd eventually get to Bethany. We know it was also the home of Lazarus, uh, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Uh, you read John chapter 11, you see that, uh, you remember Mary and Martha went to get Jesus because Lazarus had died, and it was there at Bethany that Jesus raised Lazarus from the grave. So Jesus, he's here at this time. He's in Bethany. It's just, just after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the grave. And he's probably staying in Bethany uh, for the Passover week, or the, the, the Passion week, sorry. So Jesus has been coming and going. He is building up to Passion week. And actually, Matthew's looking back to the previous week before Passion week here. And so verse 6 says that Jesus was at the home not of Lazarus, though. Notice it says he's at the home of Simon the leper. Now, that's interesting because uh, nothing's actually told about this guy other than the fact he's Simon the leper. If you know anything about leprosy during Jesus' day, uh, lepers were not allowed to, to mingle in society. They, they were considered outcasts. So uh, we can assume most likely that Simon, the leper, was healed by Jesus. And so we apparently he doesn't have leprosy. He's actually in his family home here, and he's mingling. He's, he's in society. He's no longer an outcast. And then, as, as they're there, we have this woman who comes and pours perfume over Jesus, according to verse 7. Now, the woman's name's not mentioned here. You already heard me say her name is Mary because the other gospel writers have, have mentioned her name. So we know who she is. So let's read together on the screen here. Uh, not out loud. I'll read it. But in, in John chapter 12, remember the context coming right after the, the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And so we learn some additional information that's helpful to the story. So look at this. John 12, verse 1. It says, Six days... Before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, uh, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. And that ends verse 8. So we learn a few different things from John's Gospel here that we do from Matthew. Notice in John 12, verse 3, it, it tells us that the woman whom 
Matthew's talking about is Mary. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and sister of Martha. And so Matthew is choosing to leave her as an unnamed woman. I think the reason for that is Matthew has a little different focus. He's, he's choosing to focus on the worshipful act of this person and not choosing to necessarily glorify the person. He's, he's focusing on the worshipful act. And so we also learn here that the expense of perfume, notice that the Bible says it was worth 300 denarii. Uh, if you remember, a denarii was about a day's wage. So we're looking at approximately a year's age, or, or sorry, a year's wage for a, an average laborer during that time period. So whatever you, you just equate that to whatever your year's wage for your family is, and that's what we're talking about here. Okay? So the perfume mentioned there is was made of pure nard from spike nard. I've put a picture up on the screen here for you. I don't know. I'd never really heard of spike nard before. It's a it's a flowering plant, and so it's uh, as you can see in the, in the picture there. It's actually imported from India, and it would have cost it would have cost a lot of money. Okay, so especially coming all the way from India, Gospel of Mark tells us that the woman actually broke her alabaster jar. That also would have cost a lot of money. It was. Uh, Considered alabaster jars were considered expensive during that time period. Uh, and the reason for that, it was actually made of a soft stone that came from Egypt. It, it kind of looked like marble. And so it would have been imported all the way up from Egypt. And they would somebody would have spent a lot of time carving that out for, for holding this special perfume. And so she broke it. Now, she had no intention of saving any of it. She had no intention of reusing the jar. It, it, was a, it was a sacrifice, a total unreserved sacrifice on her part. It was extravagant worship. And we see, it's interesting, Mary comes up a couple times in the Scriptures. She, she appears center stage at least three times that I'm aware of in the Gospel record. And every time she shows up, there's something, there's something incredibly interesting and I think it's really cool about Mary she's doing the same thing the three times you see her hopefully you know what it is she's found sitting at the feet of Jesus she's she's at the feet of Jesus all three times the first time she appears it's at her own home Martha is you, you probably know that story don't you Martha's busy working that's not necessarily bad but Mary Jesus said shows the better thing She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha's working, preparing the meal, and Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet for, the, for a reason that she wants to hear him speak. She wants to hear his teaching. Well, the next time we see Jesus, or sorry, Mary in, in the scriptures, it's there at the tomb of her brother Lazarus. Lazarus has died. Jesus arrives at the tomb. And Mary runs to Jesus, and again, she's bowing at Jesus' feet in supplication. There's a pattern here, isn't there? And then the last time we see is, is, is this particular time here in Matthew 26. And she's offering her worship to Jesus because of what Jesus means to her. It's extravagant worship. And so as we see Mary, you, you, you start to get a little pattern of, What's going on in Mary's heart? Who she is? We can witness her 
growth in worship just by those three examples. And so the first time we see her, she's sitting at Jesus' feet as a learner. She, she, she's there because she wants to hear Jesus' words. She wants to learn from Jesus. The second time we meet her, she's at His feet as a leaner, as someone has said. And she, what is she there for? She, she's wanting to experience Jesus' works. She, she knows Jesus is able to help her brother, even though he's dead. And here we have her. She's at the feet of Jesus as a lover. She loves Jesus. She's, she's showing extravagant worship by breaking this alabaster jar and pouring this very expensive perfume on Jesus. She's wanting to declare Jesus' worth. And that's what worship is, by the way. It's worship. It's showing the, the worth and the, the value of the one whom you are worshiping. Well, not everyone appreciated the extravagant worship. You probably, as we were reading the, the text here, you probably noticed the, the disciples' response, particularly, by the way, Judas' response, as we read in, in John, because Judas Iscariot was the one who speaks up, according to John. And the Bible says here that the disciples were indignant. Literally means they're angry for what this woman does. You say, well, well why? Well, well, we don't know anything else other than what verse 8 says. And they're, they're claiming that Mary's being wasteful. Mary's being wasteful. By the way, did you notice in John 12, it, it tells us, again, the disciple who speaks up for, for the, all the rest of them is Judas, and apparently, as far as we know, all the other disciples go along with it because Matthew says, yeah, we, we basically went along with what Judas was saying here. And so he's being a bad influence on the others, isn't he? Because Jesus, Jesus thought what she had done was a beautiful thing, a good thing. And what is the reason? What is the reason? They, well, they say in verse 9, the money could have helped the poor. We could have taken that money, sold it, and given to the poor. John 12 tells us that Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So he's kind of like the, the, the apostolic band's treasurer, if you will. He's, he's kind of like their banker looking after their money. And so, so we learn from the Bible here, he's, he was actually ripping them off. He was stealing from them. And what is Jesus' explanation? Well, in verse 10, Jesus said that Mary's deed was good. It was a beautiful thing. And what is the reason for that? Well, in verse 11, Jesus said, Hey, you know, you're, you're always going to have the poor, but me, you don't always have. All right? I'm not, I'm not always going to be on the earth, he says. I'm not going to be on the earth much longer. My, my, my reason for, for coming to the earth is coming to a climax. And by the way, that, don't take that as, as an attack against the poor. Jesus is not attacking the poor here. He's simply saying that it's his time to die. There's not much, uh, there, there's going to be, uh, not much time left to care for him. So what is the meaning of Mary's act of devotion? Well, if you look at verse 12, Verse 12, it says that in pouring of this ointment on my body, Jesus says, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Most com conservative commentators don't think that 
that she knew everything what she was doing. Mary had anointed Jesus' head, though, as clearly as an act of love. It was extravagant worship. But as this perfume is running down Jesus' face and, and probably onto his body, and because John, John mentions that Mary takes her hair, which is clearly a sign of humility, it takes her hair and wipes Jesus' feet with his perfume, which was, by the way, that, that was something that only slaves would do. So clearly this oil is running down Jesus' body. Um, he saw a much more important implication in this. That's Jesus. And, and to see this, we need to understand it was common at Jewish burials to spread aromatic oil over the Jew's body, the Hebrew's body. Why did they do that? Well, because they needed to hide the smell, right? Dead bodies eventually start stinking. And so the Jews didn't embalm the corpses like, uh, like you know, kind of even what, nothing like what we do today, didn't do what the Egyptians did. So bodies would start to stink. And so, for example, in John chapter 19, it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, as well as Nicodemus, it says they used 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes on Jesus' body. Wow. <laughs> right? That's a, lot of, that's a lot of weight they've added to help Jesus smell good. And by the way, that was the amount that would have been used for royal burials. That was also extravagant worship on Joseph and Nicodemus's part. That would have cost them a lot of money. That, would, that wouldn't have been typical for the just the ordinary average Jew. And so Jesus is saying the woman's anointing is, is really a precursor to his royal burial, if you will. And by the way, Matthew omits Jesus' bur- his burial anointing. That, that's interesting. Some of the other gospel accounts have it. Matthew omits it. But he puts this here. And so it's suggesting that this is his official burial preparation. And certainly Jesus is hinting that that here. And what is the result? In verse 13, 13, we see the story is going to be told in Mary's memory. This wouldn't be forgotten. This extravagant worship would not be forgotten. It would be told in her memory. So notice Jesus in verse 13 talks about this gospel. What is this gospel, verse 13? Well, it it's helpful, let Scripture interpret Scripture. If you go back to, don't do this, but in chapter 24, we saw that Jesus said this. He said, this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. So if we take Jesus' words in Matthew 24, we, it helps us to understand a little bit of what he's talking about. So, so, so apparently, this gospel is the kingdom message. So Jesus is saying this woman's deed will be remembered throughout the age Yet he's also hinting that his death and his burial is going to be an essential part of that good news. And of course, we know, based on other portions of Scripture, that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the gospel. So what are some lessons we can learn from this particular text? Number one, love Jesus completely. Love Jesus completely. I hope the object of your worship would be Jesus. He's worthy of worship. We see in this text that Mary loved Jesus completely. She she wasn't afraid to show extravagant worship, to to give something that would have 
we assume was way beyond her means. Even to, even for her to own just an alabaster jar, let alone this expensive uh, spikenard perfume, was way beyond her. And to sacrifice that and give to, to Jesus was extravagant worship. We see the memorial to her is a testimony to the depth of her love. Jesus is acknowledging that here. It, it's a sacrifice a self-sacrificing service on her part to, to the one whom she deeply loved. This is the one who, who loved being with Jesus, loved looking into Jesus' eyes, sitting before Him and listening, just soaking up His words. And she was totally devoted to Jesus. So this self-giving love is, is a great model for us. It's a model for what we, we need to feel, what we need to do as we serve Jesus. The Bible tells us, in fact, we're commanded to love God with all of our heart, our, our soul, our, our mind, our strength, our entire being. It's the greatest of all commandments. So, love Jesus completely. Number two, care for the poor. We need to care for the poor. Uh, over and over in the Scriptures, we see that this is something all the, the outcast of of society, those who are needy were, were continually exhorted in the Scriptures to look after and care for the poor. And so when Jesus mentioned the presence of the poor in our, in, in our midst, uh, th- this, is, this is a continuing thing, by the way, in the Greek language. He, he meant that for us as well. We don't have Jesus with us in physical form today, do we? But Jesus says, you're always going to have the poor and, and don't neglect them. Care for the needy is something that should be a key responsibility for all believers. But remember, Matthew uh, 26, 27, and 28 is primarily about Jesus. What do we need to learn about Jesus? Well, I hope, I hope you can believe this, because we need to believe that the death of Jesus Christ is the central moment of history. We, we've seen all the way from, all the way from Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, there would be the seed of the woman who would come. And Jesus is that seed of the woman. And we saw in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant said that, that through Abraham, all the peoples of the earth would be blessed. And what was the promise of the Abrahamic covenant? That was through Jesus, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. So we're building up to this time when Jesus said, hey, this is, this is why I've come. I have come to set my people free from their sins. The greatest problem you and I have, the greatest problem anyone has is their sin. And so we need to believe that the death of Jesus Christ is the central moment of history. We, we see here, coming toward the end of Matthew, we got the past and the, the future are meeting here at this event. Jesus is going to the cross. Here we see the end of the old covenants and we see the beginning of the new covenants. What is God doing? What is God doing? Well, Christ's death is really, if you will, think of it this way, the culmination of God's plan. He's, he's restoring His creation, if you will. So in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, God made everything very good. Everything was very good. There was no death. 
there was nothing bad in God's creation. And as a result of Adam and Eve sinning, death and sorrow and all the other problems we have in our universe came into being. We call that the fall. God said, well, I'm going to fix that problem. I'm going to restore paradise again. And he started by by here. He, He brought his son during this time. And Christ's death is the culmination of God's plan to bring his creation back to himself. He's starting to restore his creation. Now, we've already seen that the leaders in Israel had been afraid to arrest Jesus. We saw that at the beginning of Matthew 26. They're afraid to arrest Jesus, and they were planning to wait until after the the, the Passover week because you had all of these up to 2 million people probably coming into Jerusalem. These people loved Jesus. They thought he could be their Messiah. But now Judas... In this passage we're going to read in just a moment, Judas actually gives the religious leaders the opportunity that they were seeking, exactly what they desired. So I want you to take note as we read this. There's this huge contrast from the extravagant worship of Mary to one who knew Jesus, had been taught by Jesus. He is one of the disciples. He's there. He's been with with Jesus and, and all the other disciples during these years of Jesus' earthly ministry. So Judas's selfish act of treachery is great contrast to the selfless act of love on Mary's part. So let's, let's read about Judas, who is a negative example here. He is a disloyal hypocrite. So we'll start in verse 14. Matthew 26, verse 14 says, Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot is a negative example. Exact opposite, right, of, of what we should be like. He was a disloyal hypocrite. And this... This account is very important. It's short, but it's important. You have to understand that without Judas, the crucifixion would not probably have occurred. It's certainly not during Passover time, because the religious leaders, remember, they wanted to wait till after Passover. But the Bible says that Jesus was the Passover lamb. And so in God's providential plan, he's working everything out so that when all these thousands of lambs were being slaughtered, the lamb of God would be slaughtered. So Judas serves God's purpose here by setting in motion the passion event so that Jesus is going to die as the Passover lamb. How cool is that? I just It's just so cool to see God working things out according to his plan. So let's talk about what Judas does here. We first of all see in verse 14 that Judas goes to the chief priest of Israel. And did you notice where Matthew places Judas here? Right there in verse 14, he says that Judas was one of them. Matthew says, this guy's one of us. He's one of the 12 disciples. And so he's placed him here right in their midst. Why would he do that? Why, why would Matthew do that? <laughs> this, by the way, this is one of those things that just shows that Scripture's inspired. Because uh, Scripture's not afraid to just bring stuff out like this, the, the nasty, ugly stuff. 
that, that's not glorifying to human beings at all, is it? Matthew's highlighting the relationship here between Jesus, Jesus, uh, sorry, Judas and Jesus. And in the process, he's making Judas's act just look all the more horrifying. Just makes it look ugly. And the betrayer here is one of the group. He's not some, some enemy. He's not one of those religious leaders. He's a part of the, the group. He's a part of the 12 disciples. He's one of these guys whose experiences Jesus' love at the deepest level. And then we see that, verse 15, the chief priests agree, agree to pay Judas to betray Jesus. Now, Matthew doesn't mention this, but one of the gospel writers says that Satan, the devil, actually enters Judas. And then Judas goes off to the chief priest. So for that very reason alone, we know that Judas was not a true believer. Because Satan and the, the devil cannot enter into a Christian. See, the devil can oppress Christians, but he cannot come in because the Bible says you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, of course, is part of the Trinity, and He's God, and He, of course, is greater and more powerful than Satan. So we see the chief priest here, as Judas comes, he's, they agree to pay Judas. Matthew makes it clear that Judas is motivated by greed. That's his motivation, greed. John 12 says Judas was a thief who often stole from their common purse. And so his reasons were probably a little more complex than that. Uh, but frankly, uh, as I was reading some various commentators, some commentators go off, I would consider them rabbit trails. They, they try to go off on, why is Judas doing this? Well, frankly, Scripture's pretty much silent on the reason, except for this reason alone. He's just greedy. Many people believe his greed was mixed with disappointments. Uh, he, like many Jews, wanted a, a nationalistic hero who would rise up and help them overthrow the evil, nasty Romans. And so when Judas's expectations are dashed, maybe, maybe that mixed with his greed uh, had something to do why he's going off and betraying Jesus. But clearly, we know this reason, because Scripture says so several times, Judas is motivated by money. Money. The, the, he has this love of money. That's his primary reason. And did you notice that Judas is willing to take whatever the leaders offered him? He walks in and, and, and he says, hey, I, I'm willing to do this. There, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of debate going on here. You know, he's not, it doesn't seem like he's trying to drive the price up. Uh, if you think about it, 30 pieces of silver, the Bible says. That's really not a whole lot of money. You say, well, how much is 30 pieces of silver anyway? Well, it's not known exactly how much that is because uh, a lot of coins during that time were actually minted in silver. So it's hard to say. Are we, you know, it's, are we looking at 10 cents? Uh, 20 cents, you know, or a dollar here, you know, two dollars. It, it, it doesn't, you know, you know if, if you take our money, we don't know exactly what it is. A lot of coins were minted in the same thing, which was silver. So most assume the payment was either a denarii or a shekel. So if it, if it was a denarii or a shekel, we're looking at, well, the payment either way is not going to be a whole lot. But 
Here's what we do know. If it was a denarii, uh, that would be only a month's wage. If it was a shekel, it was only four months' wages. So Judas goes and betrays Jesus for a maximum, a maximum of four months' wages. Not a whole lot of money, especially, it's interesting, as Matthew compares so-called Judas's, you know, his payment for what Mary does. Because Mary's gift was far, far greater. In fact, Judas's payment only ends up being about 10% of what Mary gave to Jesus. And then in verse 16, we see that he gets the money, and then Judas immediately goes and he's looking for opportunity to betray Jesus. Did you see that in verse 16? Because it, it says from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. So the agreement was then for Judas to uh, let the, the, the Jewish religious leaders know when they could get Jesus, when he was actually out away from the crowds. They wanted him to be in a private spot where they could arrest Jesus, so therefore they wouldn't antagonize the people. So for the next few days, what's Judas doing? According to this, he's, he's out there. He's, he's constantly on the alert, looking for the opportune time to tell these guys, okay, now's where you get Jesus now. Nobody's going to really know. And of course, as we know, Judas ends up finding his moment, that opportune time to arrest Jesus when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's nighttime. So apparently nobody else is around except the disciples. So what lesson should we get from this? It's kind of sad when you look at this, isn't it? I mean, this scene is one of those, one of those most tragic events It's at the same time one of the most evil moments in world history. Some have said that the murder of Jesus is the greatest sin ever committed. I don't know if I can argue with that. It's really difficult to imagine how somebody, like like a Judas, how anyone could sit under Jesus' ministry, could hear all of those messages like the Sermon on the Mount, the Olivet Discourse, and all of the other messages that Judas heard, hearing all these great truths, the greatest truths ever been spoken from the greatest preacher who's ever lived, and then turn around and you betray Jesus to his death for just a little bit of money. But as I was thinking about this, it's quite hypocritical of me to kind of think that way. And if you're thinking that way, it's probably hypocritical of you. Because we need to remember, how often have you and I rejected Jesus for money? Just think about that. You, you, you just meditate on that this week, okay? How often have you rejected Jesus for money? It's possible. Just think about this. That's what, that's, cause that's what Judas is doing here. There, there, and as I was thinking about this, there is a bit of Judas in me at times. I sadly, deny Jesus. I reject Jesus. So there's a bit of Judas in me. There probably isn't you as well. And think about this as well. It's possible to be close to Jesus. Not not literally, because Jesus' body isn't here. But think about it this way. How often do you sit in church? How often do you hear Jesus' words from Scripture? You hear the, the good Bible 
sermons, Bible teaching coming from the Bible, and yet you fail to love Jesus Christ as you ought to. You never reach out to the point of making a personal commitment to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Many people have sat in church, they've listened to sermons, gone online to listen to sermons, listen to good teaching, read the Bible, and they go away unchanged. They hear the good news of Jesus Christ, but yet they are not changed inwardly. And that's sad, isn't it? We as Christians sometimes can be close to Jesus Christ and be unchanged as well. So my friend, if you're an unbeliever, just be aware of that. You can be close to Jesus, you can hear His words, and yet be lost. It would be a tragedy for that to be the case for you. But you know what? God says it's not necessary. It's not necessary for you to be close to Jesus and go away unchanged. And my prayer for you is that God would be gracious to you. God would open your eyes to see Jesus, to know who He is and what He has done for you. I pray that you would understand your sin. You know that Jesus is the Savior who has paid the penalty for your sin. So my friends, like Mary, you need to look deeply into the eyes of Jesus. Be as close as possible to Jesus. Learn to love Him with extravagant worship. You know why you need to do this? Number one, the Bible says the only way you can love God is because God first loved you. Let's just keep that, keep that in mind, okay? He loves us, and He gave His Son for us so that we wouldn't perish, but we could have eternal life and he gave himself for your salvation the bible says in james that that all good things come down from the father all the blessings you and i have come from him his grace his mercy the list goes on and on so he is worthy of worship so remember extravagant worship often we think of extravagant as a negative thing but loyalty to king jesus requires extravagant worship He is worthy of our worship. Therefore, the the negative connotation of extravagant is no longer a negative thing. It actually becomes a positive thing like it was for Mary. You can love Him and worship Him and and Jesus will remember and he He can look at you and say, hey, that's a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. Isn't that what you want Jesus to say of you? I hope you do, my friends. He is worthy of our worship. May May we give Him the required worship.